1: And extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is
2: Australia?
0: Please explain.
1: Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut.
0: Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare.
1: Tell the Prime Minister to go and get it. It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all
2: about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tipping no iceberg.
1: Like a really
0: scary wooden puppet, he was drunk. But that's not true. Not now, not
1: ever.
2: You're a classic
1: space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves.
2: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very <laughs> good.
1: <laughs> Hi there, Mark Kenny here from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute with Democracy Sausage, which is produced with the help of the Crawford School of Public Policy, PolicyForum.net and the School of Politics and International Relations. Australia's performance through a corona-shocked 2020 was world-beating. While the Morrison government bristled at suggestions it should pursue an eradication strategy against SARS-CoV-2, the suppression strategy worked so well that it became pretty much the same thing. This was aided by three critical elements. The international border closure, the unexpectedly muscular approach taken by state and territory governments, and of course the Australian people's clear embrace of extreme infection control measures. So despite a series of missteps, political and administrative, governments performed well by international standards and politicians quickly learned that the people would reward them. Just look at WA, the most aggressively parochial state through 2020, and the election a month ago saw its Labor government returned so strongly that the Liberal opposition was all but thrown out of Parliament. Tasmania is in the throes of an election right now, and it will likely follow the path of Northern Territory, ACT, Queensland and WA in returning the incumbents. But 2021 was supposed to be the payoff for voters, the year that would bring home the bacon after the self-sacrifice. Trust in government had soared, which is why we were ready to believe that Canberra had used its advantageous position to think through a vaccine program that would similarly be the envy of the world. Not for us, the blind panic of the US, the UK or France. No, despite the predictable risk of vaccine nationalism, something openly discussed globally long before a vaccine had even been found, our government would take what it called a portfolio approach, securing vaccines from multiple suppliers and even producing it here. What's more, we'd use the extra time of not having community transmission to roll it out fast but efficiently. No panic, no mistakes. Remember the claim, four million vaccinations by the end of March, everyone by the end of October. Missed it by that much. But is there still time to get smart? With me to discuss the issues are Professor Mary-Louise McClaws, who's an epidemiologist with expertise in hospital infection and infectious diseases control. She's also a member of the World Health Organization Emergency Program Experts Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness, and she has a range of other responsibilities. You'd probably know her face from countless TV interviews that she's done through this COVID period. Welcome, Mary-Louise.
0: Thank you for
1: having me. And it's welcome back to historian Professor Paul Pickering, a regular democracy sausage contributor who's also director of the Australian Studies Institute. Great to have you here again, Paul. Thanks, Mark. What do we think about this current vaccine rollout? There's quite a lot of commentary now. It's, it's, it's almost like the tide has suddenly turned or, or changed, the weather's changed, and there's quite a lot of commentary now about this vaccine rollout, uh, a lot of it really not particularly favourable to the government. That's what I really want to get into here, look at the strategy that's being used and, uh, and whether it, uh, whether it can be improved from here. Mary Louise, the current vaccine rollout, tell us about it in terms of, you know, w- how it meets the WHO guidelines and also our risk profile. Uh,
0: Mark, it, it describes the rollout as uh, a classic WHO compassionate uh, rollout, uh, where for the first um, proportion of vaccines from um, COVAX facility, it covers the high uh, risk group uh, and those that are um workers uh, at the front line. And then the next group that uh, WHO uh, had identified as needing uh, care would be um, high-risk adults such as those in residential aged care or with health issues or the elderly. And then it went to a younger group um, after doing priority groups such as, um, you know, firemen, uh, emergency, uh, you know, security people, etc. And and so this is a very, very classic approach. Uh, Do those that are perceived to be um, at at risk and then those that are perceived to be at risk because of health or age. However, epidemiologically, it um, it doesn't follow who is at greatest risk. So uh, about 75% of our deaths sure have been from residential aged care facilities. And that was because of a federal um, approach that the elderly shouldn't go into hospitals. And I believe that the rationale could have been uh, because they wanted to keep um, uh, hospitals open uh, for the general community because they probably relied on a model that said that that we were going to be inundated uh, with admissions. Uh, And so... uh, Therefore, the elderly in residential aged care facilities uh, were um, at great risk of dying. Uh, And then when the rollout of the vaccine uh, was um, being considered, uh, of course, the elderly were seen as being at high risk. Yes, they were because of the way uh, we handled it during that second wave in, in Victoria. But the group that are greatly at risk are the 20 to 39-year-olds. Now, it could be slightly younger. It's just that the way the government provides us with data on the web uh, goes in runs of 20 to 29, 30 to 39. So it could stop at even 35. But regardless, that um, young adult group, 20 to 39, have carried the highest burden of COVID during the second wave. And they were somewhere between... 40 and 50 percent of cases, depending on the time of the second wave. So, once you look after your first group, uh, the quarantine staff, and from the front door to the back door, and um, healthcare workers that look after uh, return travelers, because don't forget they often have a lot of medical conditions that have to be looked after, not just their COVID status. So, they may be positive, plus you know, hypertensive or, or any other issue, then you need to look after your frontline healthcare workers. But once you've done them, the next group would be um, your 20 to 39-year-olds. Um, they're the ones that go to the music festivals. They're the ones that socialise. Uh, they have more than about 10 um, social interactions uh, per day. Uh, once you get, start to get older, you're lucky if you meet 10 people in a week. Um, and, uh, and so uh, they're the group that you don't want your contact traces uh, taking too long to try to find all their contacts. Uh, because you can imagine, at one stage, Victoria was just looking at first line contacts, not the second line. In other words, looking at those that a case had um, interacted with But those contacts also had contacts. And as you're trying to get rid of not just suppress, as you said, but eradicate, you want to go to your second line. And you need to get there before day three because at day three, about 40% of exposed people become infectious to others, and that risk increases to when you become symptomatic. But during that day three, four, and five, you are an invisible risk to the community and the contact tracers have to find you and if we have the Brazilian strain leak out into the community uh, that will be the one uh, that will get into the 20 to 39 year olds because of their sociability. So if you were going to redo it from an epidemiological perspective you put them right after that frontline group and then and um, all other healthcare workers. Uh, Mind you, I have heard that Queensland has sensibly moved anyone that's positive uh, into the hospitals, and that's where they should be because you can't get that airflow change in hotels high enough at 10 uh, air changes per hour per person in an average room at that level. um, That's what you have in a hospital. You can't get that in a quarantine hotel and you definitely can't get it in a corridor to get rid of those tiny particles that then produce the risk of um, what's called called, um, airborne spread.
1: Can I just uh, interrupt you there, sorry Mary Louise, and just sort of go back to a a quite basic question though. If we accept that those you know those conditions that I talked about before. We have low community transmission, low to zero trans community transmission. We have an objective for the whole population to be vaccinated. Uh, the The original objective was for that to be done by the end of October. Basically, in if you put those two things together, low to zero transmission and. The objective of the whole population or everyone who um, wants it is able to get vaccinated. Why is it so vital to to then get into this whole tiering process? So it sort of makes sense in perhaps the most initial stage, you know, the frontline health workers, perhaps people working in customs, and 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 one or two of those other things. But but essentially, the pro- best protection for everyone is. Is everyone else being vaccinated? Um, and w- one wonders if in a situation of, as I say, low or zero transmission, whether you aren't just better vaccinating all comers at the highest rate that you can vaccinate them.
0: You're you're absolutely right, Mark. Absolutely, if we had zero risk. But the risk that we have is through our quarantine hotels. And um, we keep getting risks And the authorities keep rushing out to uh, do contact tracing. And, uh, for example, the physician, uh, she uh, who was at uh, the Princess Alexandra Hospital, she inadvertently um, caused uh, two direct cases that I'm aware of. There was another person that turned up later on. Um, and then, of course, the nurse, her sister, and multiple others. So they were in the front line, but they hadn't been vaccinated. But this has also happened in quarantine, where a worker has acquired it without, and say, for example, a cleaner in Queensland, where they can't work out what um, the non compliance issue was for them to acquire it. Now, don't forget, An infectious disease physician is incredibly well trained and that hospital is one of the best hospitals in all of Australia for infection control. So if a nurse and a doctor acquired it without the vaccination, it shows you it's very difficult to contain in a hospital, let alone in a quarantine hotel. So for New South Wales and Victoria, they're going to... uh, um, re-energise their quarantine hotel uh, program this week, Um, we in the community are still at risk because they're still having uh, groups come out that uh, have a greater likelihood of being infected now than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And if you had a look at the testing rate and the positive rates from the beginning of March in Queensland, their positive rate was going up from compared to the week before in February, it went up fourfold, then it went up about sevenfold, then it went up tenfold before before there was even an outbreak via the doctor and the nurse. In other words, there are more travellers coming who are, who are positive.
2: Why would the doctor and the nurse be allowed to work before they had had the... Given that we've got so few patients... Um, why would they be allowed to actually work when they hadn't had the uh, the vaccination? Presumably, there were other frontline staff who could have worked in until, or, or why hadn't they been um, vaccinated by that time?
0: Hmm. Well, to answer one of your questions, uh, one answer could be that they had figured that uh, there had been few infections previously with between a COVID patient and a highly trained uh, staff. And therefore, they figured that their personal protective equipment and their hand hygiene and their environmental cleaning was um, uh, going to keep the staff safe. But I was part of a group, uh, a, a, a team effort looking at why healthcare workers acquired SARS in 2003. And um, it's very hard to work. Uh, long hours in your personal protective equipment. It's hot, it's exhausting, and there's always an accidental touching of the mask or rubbing of the eyes. So I imagine that that hospital will go through um, every single step that both the doctor and the nurse took to try to work out where the breach was. Um, But in Victoria, they had over 2,000 healthcare workers acquire COVID, and that, oh, sorry, and that included um, staff at residential aged care. It's very hard to tease out did they get it socially or how did they get it at work. Uh, one hypothesis that I would suggest was poor air change uh, in hospitals. They, when they're old, they don't have great airflow change, and um, certainly in residential aged care, it's like a home. They have very poor airflow change. Um, but in Princess Alexandra Hospital it would have been perfect because that hospital had been um, the old one had been imploded and a new one built in the, in that place uh, to really beautiful standards. So I don't know the answer to that and I also don't know if they had other uh, physicians infectious disease physicians and infectious disease ward um, uh, clinical nurses who had been vaccinated. Now, the nurse had had one dose, I think it was on the 19th, and they believe she was exposed on the 23rd. And experience is that with Pfizer, if you're going to get infected, it reduces your viral load considerably, so you're less at risk of giving it to others. But really, you're not safe until day 10 or 14 with Pfizer, and about the same with AstraZeneca as well. So, uh, your point is, and it's well taken. Why didn't they find some other healthcare worker that had had the first dose for at least two weeks, or at least had had the second dose, even for a shorter period of time, because they would have been at less risk?
1: What do we know about the the AstraZeneca versus Pfizer vaccines? In in as much as you know, you just referred to them in terms of their effectiveness or the, the way they operate to reduce the viral load and therefore the transmissibility of the the virus. Um, They have different characteristics. They operate in different ways. The Pfizer vaccine seems to be better, to perform better. Is that the early evidence that it performs better at reducing the viral load and also it has a, what is it, a shorter interval between when you have the first and the second shot?
0: Well, the reason that all frontline workers need to be vaccinated with Pfizer is definitely mark that interval. It's only 21 days versus three months for AstraZeneca. So I know that um, health workers in sterilization areas and others um, are, uh, are often given AstraZeneca instead of Pfizer. That's the problem that the three-month period um, and we have a million doses available. So that should cover all 170,000 quarantine and health frontline healthcare workers. Then we've got another 953,000 in, um, in phase, um, 1B. So we don't have enough for all of them.
1: Pfizer in- you're talking about? Pfizer yeah.
0: exactly for to to receive Pfizer, which is disappointing, because from the back door to the front door, of hospitals, they should all be receiving Pfizer, because it has only twenty one days between the first and the second dose. But getting back to your question about which one's a superior vaccine, it's very difficult to say because some of the uh, trial, the trial third phase three trial for both of them. So we're you know, happening in different countries with different um, uh, prevalences. So, in other words, at different phases of um, of the pandemic. And so, of course, if you've got a lot of COVID, it really tests it out dramatically. If you've got ba- a variance of concern, it really tests it. But if you're testing, say, for example, Pfizer, um, somewhere where you don't have a variance or you don't have a high load it may may turn out to be better but there was a mix of uh, groups most of them did white Caucasians um, sadly um, and it's we know a lot about Pfizer because Israel is kindly giving uh, the community everything they know about um, what they're experiencing with Pfizer and how that their numbers, case numbers have plummeted with fly at Pfizer. But equally, I mean, at the moment, um, Israel has, if I just have a look at my data, because I, I data stalk them all the time, um, <laughs> Israel's uh, coverage today, they have cumulatively given 10 million. So They've covered about 60% of their population. Uh, so you need, you know, 200% um, uh, coverage and they're at
1: 116%. So that that means that effectively 16% have had a second shot, does it?
0: Um, maybe not completely, no, because there's certainly a, all the healthcare workers have had their second shot. About Probably about 60% of people have had their second shot, but they're really having trouble. Uh, getting the low socioeconomic groups. Um, You know, low socioeconomic groups feel disaffected and we will have exactly the same problem and we need to learn from this. But but getting back to um, efficacy, so so we've learned an awful lot about viral load if they do get infected um, and how they're protected at what day after um, vaccination. AstraZeneca, um, we're learning more and more, um, but... I have great faith in the fact that um, if AstraZeneca, like Pfizer, reduces death and serious ill health in you know, a serious COVID, severe COVID, then the logic is that it's reducing viral load. So the logic is it will um, give a great protection for transmissibility as well. So I think uh, rather than us judging AstraZeneca too early, we should be thinking that it probably will turn out to be a, 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 very, a very good, cheap, easy-to-roll-out uh, vaccine. Certainly uh, the mRNA um, technology is very exciting and there's, a, there's good reason for Australia uh, to invest in their vaccinologists and virologists because we've got some of the best in the world uh, to start developing more of this and the clamp uh, technique it sadly failed in Queensland so that we not only develop but produce vaccine for the next um, uh, pandemic because sadly there will be another one.
2: So can you take both?
0: Ah, nice question. So uh, in um, Oxford, there, uh, there is a, a trial going on at the moment looking at the effect of two AstraZeneca's, two Pfizer shots, then an AstraZeneca followed by a Pfizer, then a Pfizer followed by an AstraZeneca. So it would be nice if they also added maybe a Novavax or a Moderna or, a, a, you know, a one-off booster shot, um, the J&J. Um, there, there is no logical reason why you couldn't have two different ones, but the efficacy might be very, very interesting. And it might be incredibly hopeful for the Brazilian uh, variants of concern um, that if it does leak into the community, if you have a shot of another type of vaccine, it might boost your immune system so that you're protected because I think as Mark pointed out, you know, this um, uh, variance from Brazil um, is problematic because it appears as if you can be reinfected uh, after you've had a wild strain and then you could be reinfected with this variant of concern. But if this different shot Um, gives us more of a boost or has been modified because the mRNAs apparently are faster to be modified for uh, variants of concern. So if they modify it, tweak it, and then we all have a booster, um, that may be a a saving uh, for us so that we can uh, keep our borders open and go back to near normal life.
1: Wouldn't that be a good thing? Let's just take a quick break and be back in just a moment.
0: Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Now I'm really interested, Paul, in uh, what we, you know. One of the issues that sort of runs underneath all of what we've been talking about so far is is the rollout that we've got. Mary Louise has talked about the you know the, the, the staging of it and the, and the logic of that, but. What's your view? Is it is it are we sort of drowning in complexity here? I noticed that um, some commentary on the weekend. Uh, one of the commentators made a very good point about complexity and confusion being real enemies of of uh, big public messaging campaigns, particularly public health messaging. Is there is there a is this just sort of too clever by half?
2: I think it demonstrates the transition uh, transition from. What was an atypical politics, which was very close state-federal cooperation and a sort of a national sense of um, a national sense of urgency in dealing with the situation, to a return to a traditional form of politics, and so that there's an inverse relationship between as we've gone back to both bickering between state and federal authorities and between. Commonwealth uh, government parties, um, we've seen a decline in uh, the credibility and the effectiveness of communication. Um, So politicians are now talking to one another rather than talking to the community with a united voice. Mm. And it also shows, I think, and our colleague um, Sally Wheeler has made this point, that the Australian people have generally been compliant, very compliant in relation to uh, government uh, advice. Despite our reputation for anti-authoritarianism, we've been very compliant. But I get the sense that as the rise of traditional politics is taking place, the mood is changing um, in relation to whether or not uh, people are satisfied with the way that the government is performing.
1: It's interesting, though, when you think about. I mean, I agree with all of those points. Uh, when you think about the, the the politics of this, if we cast our minds back to the first half of 2020, as we came to grips with what we were facing, uh, you know, government programs needed to be instituted, and of course, we saw the increase to Job Seeker and the, the creation of the JobKeeper program, a whole range of other things, a whole lot of public health messaging, uh, and. And uh, measures that were taken by authorities, but also by individuals, and and running along underneath all of that was this, particularly from the political right, was this uh, commentary about protecting the economy, about not going overboard, not overreacting on the health front. Make sure you don't destroy the economy, um, because you know keeping businesses going was absolutely critical. Now that was uh, one of the uh, very solid. Foundations of the JobKeeper program. It was about keeping businesses afloat, keeping employees connected with them, and so forth. But nonetheless, this was a very sort of persistent argument, and it has been in other polities as well, particularly in the US. I wonder whether we now face the same situation. We're not getting that same level of commentary, but the slow and tremulous rollout of the vaccine presents. Pretty much the same economic problem, which is to say, uh, people are going to be very reluctant to invest if they feel like state border closures are, are um, you know, able to happen at short notice. They are less likely to uh, travel to. Um, put you know money into renting holiday homes or, or or whatever even if it is domestically and of course while international borders remain closed you know that has very strong uh imp- implications for the economy as well so in other words there's an economic imperative for getting this rollout happening fast and effectively
2: yeah it's um by any standards uh, an omni shambles the way that this has developed and it's partly now because people have, members of the government in particular, have become entrenched in the messaging that they put out and committed to targets that they now have to pretend that they're still going to meet or revising the targets, but saying, you know, coming up with other metaphors, that it's not a race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: It's both not a race and a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> If you can match all of those <laughs> things together. Yeah,
2: I mean, so say anything and... In an attempt to try and fill a credibility gap that's mm. that's that's opened up, and it, I think it does it beggars belief that they've had so long to work on how to get this out, and have managed to to create what what is a monumental bungle.
1: That was the actual um, advantage of it, Mary Louise, wasn't it? That we were told that because we had, and I'm sort of hammering this point a bit, but. We were told that because we have such a, a strong performance and we had zero community transmission, that we could use all of this extra time to get all of this right. And really, the you know, there's no doubt that the, the European bans on the um, uh, provision of vaccines has created a supply problem, and we shouldn't you know uh, gloss over that fact. It is a a reality that Australia is dealing with. But it was a foreseeable risk it was as I say talked about quite a lot and yet it's sort of put forward now as if oh well that's something the the government couldn't have made a judgment about.
0: WHO last year reminded everybody who are um, all those countries who were members of COVAX facility to start planning and they didn't mean plan to make a plan they actually meant Start um, re- doing it in reality. Start organising it. So, what we've had, even for just Covax facility, where where we are a member, so we'll we will get a proportion of vaccines from WHO eventually. Although we don't really need them compared to our neighbours in the Asia Pacific and the Americas. Um, so there is no excuse for the slow rollout. Um, and I'm just. Surprise that we're not going into mass vaccination venues. And as Paul has uh, rightly mentioned, uh, making things very complex uh, and then, it, of course, causes uh, the community to start wondering when is my turn? How will I know? Where should I turn up? Uh, not everybody has a GP. Not everybody has a Medicare card because we have uh, residents and visitors and yet they're all allowed um, to have a vaccine and it creates problems uh, in people's minds so uh, with Paul's idea of well why don't we just open it up to anybody first come first served absolutely anybody has merits once our front line are done and done with Pfizer and then once our 20 to 39 year olds are done because they are at risk of any leakage from the quarantine program. But what I don't understand is, um, authorities get into a mindset where they've made a decision, but they don't know how to move uh, when they've got uh, more information. So, look, it would have been fairly obvious that there was going to be a supply problem. There's seven Seven odd million of us, uh, sorry, billion of us um, around the world, and we all need to vaccinate everybody because, um, as we've talked about, the vaccine efficacy doesn't cover a hundred percent of anybody receiving a vaccine. So when we start travelling, we could be at risk of acquiring it if people in at our destination unvaccinated, and so therefore that vaccination level acts as a ring fencing to protect us and protect them from us in case we're not really protected, although we think we are. So um, opening up mass vaccine uh, facilities like stadiums is the bleeding obvious. I mean, at the moment we're at week six and we vaccinated 3.3 people per hundred. In the UK, and they were dealing with a pandemic, uh, you know, not like us, uh, they, at this stage, were twice that. The US, uh, leading the pandemic in the world, uh, 7.4 people, and, of course, Israel, 54.9 people per 100. So for the authorities to say that we're at a good place for the vaccination rates, um, that's not entirely accurate. Uh, the average vaccine uh, rate, on average for the last six weeks, has been about 20,000. That's about a quarter of the rate that we need to be able to cover people with at least one vaccine, a dose, and hopefully the majority get a second one three months after that by this new um, uh, uh, strategy now of vaccinating everybody by December 31. So we... Uh, need about 133,000 injections per day. So at the moment, we're only doing on a really good average day 20,000. So we've really got to lift that game. And the way to do that is mass vaccination. And as Paul said, get everybody to turn up to those max, mass vaccine facilities, regardless of your age. Um, that's one way of doing it.
2: I think there's two points to make there, Mark. Um, one is that obviously the government is typically reliant upon advice from the public service about how to implement programs, and it seems to me to borrow the metaphor, it beggars belief that they didn't work out that this wasn't going to work. Um, when I was trained as a historian, I was we were all advised against apt anecdotal illustration, but I actually visited the GP for um, a routine test last week and the the uh, room was full. But there was a, ga- a gap at the counter and I went up and I asked, when can I book a shot? And they told me the 6th of May. Now that surprised me. Uh, and then when I saw the doctor, I asked him how many vaccinations he'd given That day, and it was two. So the rest of the room was seeing the doctor for other reasons. Mm. So, how could anyone think that trying to do this through ordinary GPs who've got to see people about a plethora of other issues? Was going to somehow work.
1: You mean in terms of the, the, just the logistics of those medical practices? They're already operating at uh, like a sort of physical constraint of in terms of the staff and also the space itself.
2: Yeah. Well, you're adding a when you're adding a,
1: a whole a, new yeah, demand process. Yeah,
2: and a huge number of people hmm. who are going to have to fit into an existing system of supply and demand for doctors and patients. So it just seems to me to be. Incredible that someone could think that that would work.
0: Um, I have heard that there are three major uh, medical um, suppliers, such as uh, Sonic, um, uh, providing, I don't know who the other two are, providing um, a rollout as well, assisting uh, the rollout. So uh, once decisions are made and agreements are signed, the government should be telling us that, well, they can't get out of this agreement. However, if if they also added a catch-up with mass vaccination, then they could go back to a much more um, uh, slower uh, method of rolling it out with GPs because you've got to wait for 15 to 30 minutes after being vaccinated to make sure you're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that takes up uh, one regular quick appointment for say a um, a prescription Uh, so they can't run these vaccine uh, clinics every day uh, unless they run it at night or um, they run it uh, simultaneously if they have more than uh, one or two doctors in practice so uh, we could be doing this let's catch up to where we should be and then uh, roll out to for a slower one for people who can't get to mass uh, facilities. Um, but I think the problem is uh, the these agreements that have been made uh, with providers that we don't know about and we're not being advised. This is why they can't change direction because logic would suggest they should change direction.
1: Well, this is an interesting point because uh, Mark Butler, the uh, the Labor's uh, health spokesperson, uh, made the point this morning uh, that he thinks two things are necessary, for, uh, two sort of changes are necessary in the way the government's going about it. One is for a much greater sense of transparency uh, of what is what is being done and what you know what is in the in the offing and and uh, what changes will be made, what are the limitations at the moment, all of those things, and a greater sense of urgency. Uh, what what do you think about that paul
2: it demonstrates in a sense the the fragility of public confidence in the process uh there clearly there are a number of people who've got concerns about the efficacy or the dangers of the vaccine and um epidemiologists like mary lou have been telling us that the the, the dangers of not having the vaccine are much greater than the dangers of having it. But let's face it, the, the bungle in the way of distributing it and the cases of blood clot and, uh, have been an absolute boon for the anti-vaxxers. Mm. In fact, th- this morning I was hearing someone saying, well, oh, well, the, the vaccines are causing the new strains. So, I mean, the, the, um, the fact that they've bungled the delivery the rollout in a sense opens a space for a lack of credibility um, in the process itself
1: which is a, which is a terrible sort of yin and yang situation given that we've just been through a period of you know the really really a great deal of you know respect for authority for um, for credit you know the credibility of expertise uh, the usefulness of it there's been a re- you know return of trust in government and institutions through this period i wonder whether that to some extent has sort of crept into officialdom a sort of almost a sense of of hubris that uh, you know we've done well and we know everything you know that 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 temptation that that may grab public officials uh, and they've then gone about over planning this, rather than in fact thinking, no, the we're still in an emergency situation, and we need to have emergency type thinking. We need to think with a great deal of urgency. And I mean, do they need Mary Louise to stand up these um, these mass vaccination centres in the same way that they quickly stood up the COVID testing in large warehouses and car parks and places like that? Um, is is it's, it's not that long ago they were doing that and some of those I guess, those facilities still exist presumably but a lot of them have also been decommissioned because they're no longer we're no longer operating at that kind of fever pitch. Is that the sort of thing they need to do and do it quickly?
0: Well, we've already got uh, fabulous uh, sporting stadiums. Uh, we've already got high school campuses, uh, university campuses. So they could be set up in every suburb. Um, you know, let alone uh, a major city for a, right. a, a major facility like Sydney Cricket Ground. Um, but they could have them in multiple areas. But don't forget, not everybody works Monday to Friday and it, they really do need to set these up uh, not quite 24 hours a day but certainly seven days a week so that people who uh, work uh, during the day uh, can go and get vaccinated at night um, and vice versa. So there, there is no logical reason why they couldn't do it, given that AstraZeneca uh, just needs to be put in the fridge. Uh, it doesn't need ultra-cold.
1: Right. Now, just before we go, uh, can we just talk about the, the variance and, and, and the risk that they present to this process? Because slow and orderly, even if it's working at its best, um, does at least – Raise the question about the possibility of sort of variants coming into the picture which outrun that process um there uh, there's a piece written by a, a clutch of people in the uh, of, of uh, public health academics uh writing in the conversation today where they talk about the variants Mary Louise i think you've mentioned the the um the the UK1 the Brazilian one the South African one um there is a, a real fear that, these, that the, the, the virus, whenever it's being passed on, has a chance to mutate and that this problem will continue to escalate. So from that point of view alone, there needs to be greater urgency, presumably.
0: Yes, there needs to be an urgency um, for the frontline workers uh, because if we keep them safe, and their household safe, because don't forget even with uh, Pfizer, uh, 5% of people may not elicit a good immune response and they could take it home to their household community and to the local coffee shop or bar or uh, dry cleaners as they're all heading on the way home. So um, the frontline quarantine and their home uh, households need to be vaccinated. Uh, and then once that happens, we are l- less anxious because we, we don't have a time when our borders have to be open and it's free for all and then we are at risk. So that sort of risk is definitely a European uh, anxiety and American anxiety and a UK anxiety. But for us, it's only anxious for that frontline group and their household.
1: Were you frustrated when uh, when last year, as these vaccines started to become a reality as we realised that they were going to work, that there was so much of a kind of a cool your jets approach from the Commonwealth. There was a bit of a clamour for Australia to sort of sign contracts with vaccine companies. Uh, they were being signed by other governments around the world. We were assured that uh, we were having a portfolio approach. We didn't end up with one with Moderna, one of the mRNA um, uh, vaccines. Um, was that was that a mistake for a start? And has there, as Stephen Duckett says, I mean, I, I guess I'm asking you as a as a public health expert here uh, for a political opinion, but has there been too much of an uh, approach? By the, the Commonwealth Government on the politics and the announceables rather than on the public health outcomes?
0: Well, uh, I'm answering from an outbreak epidemiology um, uh, approach. And that is always think of the worst and then plan for the worst. Uh, and those that are the best at planning are uh, groups like Defence Forces. You know, go into an area and think catastrophe. And then when it doesn't happen, everything's okay. And that's exactly what you do with outbreak. You think the worst of human um, behaviour. You think the worst of supplies. You think the worst of maybe uh, what the vaccine may or may not give you and the worst for um, side effects. And from this perspective, to answer your question, then they should have had a really um, much um, much more variety in their portfolio because if although we were able to um, produce uh, AstraZeneca in Australia, um, you know, even a portfolio of of vaccine that sprays up your nose, because don't forget, to get the vaccine into your arm, you have to have a needle and syringe. It has to be the right size. And that didn't occur initially for Pfizer to be able to get that extra dose out. Um, Then the supply of AstraZeneca from Europe uh, How fast would we start developing? And WHO said to all countries, imagine that your vaccine's going to work. Start producing it and then wait for your results and then get your approval. In other words, put your money where your mouth is and we should have been um, producing AstraZeneca and then wait for uh, approval by the TGA before it was then rolled out. But we would have it there in plenty of supply. And uh, yes, um, we are going to eventually get Novavax, but that won't happen until May or June uh, because they're, they'll be having to give um, TGA uh, all of their data and that will take quite some time. But at the moment, there's Moderna that's being given out in America and, of course, there's now Johnson & Johnson with a single shot. So we could have had uh, a much more diverse um portfolio of of different vaccines to give to different groups to get it out there rapidly.
1: And Paul, I guess the risk there would have been, um, as as Mary Louise points out, you've got to do all these risk assessments. And one of the risks there would have been spending too much and perhaps having too much vaccine. But that wouldn't be such a problem if we could uh, then transfer that to Pacific Neighbours, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in due course that those questions need to be um, explored. What what was the reason? Was it some form of um, vaccine nationalism that was at work there, or was it just simply cost that, that was driving those decisions? It it really it, it really does need to be um, uh, uh, explored because there's no reason being given why the contract negotiations with various different companies didn't come to
1: fruition i mean presumably there was a fair bit of international competition with those those uh, those companies as well uh, lots of countries were looking to secure their futures
0: there is one other uh, complication as well and that was uh, the clamp style vaccine uh, being developed in queensland yeah the uq and, one uh, and so that was probably part of the equation that We'll have that as well, and it'll be an Australian one. Um, But again, uh, you need to catastrophize in outbreaks. What will happen if this doesn't work?
1: Yes, very good point. Look, thank you very much, Mary Louise McClaws and Paul Pickering for being on Democracy Sausage uh, this week. It's uh, talking about vaccines, it's the issue du jour. Uh, There's no question about that and it will be for some time. So um, it's been really terrific getting your views and uh, we look forward to talking to you again at some point in the future and hopefully with with a situation that has improved in terms of the logistics of this rollout. That's uh, Democracy Sausage for this week Um, when we come back I think later in the week I'm hoping to be talking to uh, Matthew Knott from the US to get a perspective on politics post-Trump and uh, how things are going there all all things uh, willing uh, assuming that can be brought about we'll be talking to you later in the week with that interview so until then bye for now